The FDA is currently tracking about 80 different drug shortages in the United States. But Hick and colleagues argue in a perspective article that the current national shortage of normal saline represents a new chapter in the story. What are the causes and effects of these shortages, and what can be done about them? I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Aaron Fox, Manager of the Drug Information Service at the University of Utah Hospitals and Clinics and Associate Professor of Pharmacotherapy at the University of Utah College of Pharmacy. Dr. Fox, Hick and his colleagues write that normal saline is more the lifeblood of hospital care than blood itself. What can you tell us about this particular shortage, what caused it, what the effects have been? Saline use is so prevalent in hospitals, it's really a supply rather than a medication. It's used on both sides of that equation. It's a supply in that some patients only need to have saline for their treatment, you know, some IV fluids, and other patients need some additional medications along with that saline. And so when you're short of such a basic supply, you know, our physicians here asked me what the next shortage would be if it would be air next. (laughs) It is so prevalent. It is really the mainstay of what you need to run a hospital. This shortage really mirrors the problem of many of the drug shortages that are impacting clinicians across the country. There are only a couple of manufacturers of these products. Really, Baxter and Hospira make the majority of the supply of these products, and it's pretty evenly split. Unfortunately, both of these companies had supply problems at the same time, and that really created such drastic shortage that neither company could ramp up any supply in the meanwhile to make up the difference. And I think it really shows how fragile our supply chain is that a small glitch at both companies can create really a disaster situation for hospitals. Looking at the bigger picture, there were yesterday 80 drugs on the shortages list in 19 different therapeutic categories, ranging from anesthesia to gastroenterology to psychiatry. In all of that, what do you see as the most critical current shortages? Really, the most critical shortages, I have to give saline to be at the top of that very closely followed by some of the anesthesia medications, the neuromuscular blocking agents that are short, along with nitroglycerin injection. Nitroglycerin injection is a first-line agent for any patient with chest pain angina, and it's, you know, not having our first-line agents, not having basic supplies is really creating a disastrous situation in hospitals. You talked about manufacturing and supply problems. What, in fact, are the most common causes of these drug shortages? That's a great question. So FDA has done some reporting on this, as has the GAO, and we've certainly done some research into it ourselves at our unit. But overall, the main problem are quality problems at the manufacturing facilities. Because there are only a few facilities that make these drugs, and these facilities have not been updated over time to really be state-of-the-art quality in manufacturing, these facilities are running at very high capacity. They have no wiggle room for any type of a glitch. And when you read FDA inspection reports, you can read about some pretty concerning things, particles and shavings falling into the solutions, bacterial and fungal contaminations, mold on the walls. These factories are a picture of really poor quality. And these factories are not overseas right now. They're actually in the U.S. So this is a really a failure of U.S. manufacturing. So you speak of the FDA inspecting and the FDA reporting. Is there anything the FDA can do to address the root causes of these shortages? So FDA does a lot to try to prevent shortages. They do really work with the companies to try to 
ameliorate the shortages, whether that's expediting inspections or approvals. So whenever possible, FDA's drug shortage team does a great job of trying to prevent them. But you have to take a step back and think about drug manufacturing is absolutely a business. And business really comes first for these companies. And no matter how critical a drug, FDA cannot compel any manufacturer to keep manufacturing a product or make more of a product or even distribute a product with priority to perhaps high-level trauma centers. So in a way, there's not much FDA can do to help ameliorate the situation and really get at some of the root causes. FDA has rules on how drugs must be manufactured. Those rules have actually changed very little over 40 years. So it's really up to the manufacturers to follow the rules. In recent years, we've heard about shortages of cancer drugs. Some of those have no equivalents. Do you have any insight into those potentially life and death situations and what might help hospitals and oncologists to deal with that problem? Sure. So the shortages of cancer drugs are particularly difficult. Really, any shortage of a drug where there's no good alternative, where a physician has to turn to a medication where perhaps they know it is less effective, or sometimes they're not even sure if there's evidence that this medication will work. So that's a very tough place for clinicians to be in. And, you know, I know that this journal has done a nice job of covering some of those cancer drug shortages and trying to provide a framework for physicians when they have to ration care, you know, what are the best ways to do that involving ethical committee and your P&T committee. But it's really very frustrating and a very sad state of affairs when we don't have the very basics we need when you don't have the drug of choice. I think that's one of the reasons why drug shortages are different from other supply and demand situations. With other supply and demand situations, the supply, if demand for a product increases, supply might also increase. But with drug products, the drug of choice is the drug of choice, and it really doesn't change depending on availability or even cost. Do we have any data on the effects of these shortages? For example, the number of patients who have potentially avoidable side effects with substitute drugs, or in fact, the number of patients who die because of drug shortages? That's a great question. We know that at least 15 patients have died because of drug shortages directly. We also know of a number of patients receiving cancer care who are experiencing maybe more complications because of substitute therapy. However, because we don't have a national reporting system, like a national medical care database, we don't exactly have a good idea of how many patients are impacted by this shortage. And one of the things that healthcare providers do is they go to extraordinary measures, extraordinary lengths. The patient comes first. So these shortages almost become invisible to the patients unless the patient knows that they are not perhaps receiving their cancer treatment or another treatment. But in most cases, most shortages in the hospitals are very seamless and invisible to the patients. It's the physicians and the pharmacists and the nurses who are working double-time, triple-time to try to make sure that, that there's a product for the patient when they need it. You work with the American Society of Health System Pharmacists and its Drug Shortage Resource Center. What does the center recommend to hospitals and health systems to prepare for shortages and then to deal with them when they occur? My team here at our Drug Information Service, we provide all of the content for the ASHP website, and we also contributed to the ASHP guidelines on managing drug shortages. And really, any hospital needs to have a plan. The excellent article in this 
issue of New England Journal of Medicine by Hick and colleagues that they really outline the planning and how key that is. We really mirror that in our guidelines. And so hospitals need to have a plan in order to manage these shortages well. It's really important to have a clear chain of command as far as who's responsible for ordering product, who's going to be tracking the product, as well as who's going to be communicating about these shortage issues. Shortages change very quickly, and you need to have a flexible plan, but you still need to have planning in place. And each shortage is different. So a shortage of something like saline that impacts virtually every patient in your hospital, you're going to have a different plan for that than you would a shortage of a chemotherapy drug that perhaps impacts a few patients. Each shortage is critical, each shortage is important, but your planning will be a little bit different for each shortage. Finally, do you see any viable long-term solution to these problems? And if you do, who's responsible for implementing it? I think every person in the pharmaceutical supply chain, from, from FDA to the people that purchase pharmaceuticals, has a role in fixing this problem. FDA has suggested in their strategic plan on managing drug shortages that people may want to consider if we need to incentivize manufacturers to have higher quality. If we encourage purchases to be made based on high quality, over time the hope is that the manufacturers will match and they will want to provide a very high quality product. At this point in time, we know the key manufacturers are trying hard to fix their factories, but we almost have a too-big-to-fail situation. These companies are too big to fail, and they actually are failing. So in some ways, I wonder if we need a government bailout like we had with our banks, with our car companies. But when we have hospitals that don't have the basic drugs that they need every day to treat their patients, that is an absolute failure. And these companies certainly are too big to fail. Thank you, Dr. Fox.